I did cover everything. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that we're here. Thank you that we can study your word. We're very grateful for every day that we have to gather together. And, Lord, as we study your word right now, there's something here for us. I know it's for all of us because we can get so involved in the things of the world that it begins to take priority over our devotion to you. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. We would be teachable right now. Again, I thank you for all the moms that are here and their ministry to their children. And Lord, I pray that you would bless them and that they would know that the work that they do, the ministry that they have, is highly esteemed by you. And Lord, we thank you that you allow us to minister to whatever state we're in to different individuals. But Lord, may today we be equipped that we may take heed and be teachable right now. So Lord, that we can move forward in, in just our devotion with you being reminded of your goodness. May we, Lord, just have a heart that is stirred to desire to please you with our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we've gone as far as chapter 19 of Matthew. As you turn there, this is a good time to make sure our ringers are off our phones. But chapter 19 of Matthew, we've gone as far as verse 16 in our verse-by-verse study of Matthew. And we do read in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 19, Matthew writes, Now behold, in other words, this is important. One came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. There's one that comes to Jesus. Many of us, we know this um, this account that's given to us in Matthew's gospel, in the synoptic gospels. And he comes to Jesus and he asks a very important question. We know that as we continue reading that Matthew is going to tell us that he was young. Mark's gospel informs us that he was rich. Dr. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. Perhaps he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He is everything that we would look up to and desire to be in this world. He's young, he's wealthy, he has a prominent status. Some circles of the church would hold this guy up as, as one that they would want in leadership or maybe perhaps on their board. And, and they would hold this guy up as one that they would desire to have. He's wealthy, he's healthy, he's of influence, he's energetic, I'm sure. He's a go-getter. He is the kind of guy that every parent would want their young daughter to meet and to marry. He's resourceful. He would be one that maybe perhaps every Wall Street firm, you know, would want to hire. And as he comes, he asks Jesus, he makes a beeline to him. That's what I picture. Uh, He comes and doesn't beat around the bush. He lays all of his cards on the table. What must I do to have eternal life? I am a ruler. I'm rich. I'm young. And he's going to claim to be a good person. What else is there to do? So first of all, as he asks this question, Jesus stops short of directly answering his question and says, why do you call me good? You call me good teacher. 
Now that title good teacher was never applied to other rabbis and, and the reason was is because the rabbis, the teachers knew that there was only one that was truly perfectly good and that was God. And in Jesus answering or posing this question to him, why do you call me good? Don't think that, that Jesus is denying his deity. Don't you know that only God is good? He's not denying his deity. He is not implying, oh, don't call me good because I'm not God. He was implying is he's getting this man to think. Think about what you're saying. You're calling me good teacher. Are you recognizing that I am truly good, that I am the son of God? Jesus, I believe, is trying to draw out from him a recognition of faith that he is the son of God since he is good. And as we read this story, this man coming, asking this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a very important question. It is a question that a lot of people ask in the world today. They have lots of opinions. They have lots of ideas. The world has lots of answers. What you must do to inherit eternal life. And there are those who suggest, and, and I kind of agree with it, that this young ruler isn't just asking about how to be saved, but it's very possible, very probable, that he is asking how could he be assured of a very important position in the Messiah's kingdom. You see, remember, the people are seeing Jesus do miracles. He has been healing the multitudes, as in chapter 19, it opened up that he has left Galilee for the very last time. You might recall that it was up in the Galilee region after defeating of the 5,000 that the people were ready to, to take him, to force him as king. And as they came to him, he dismissed the crowds. He would tell his disciples, I'm going to go to Calvary. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests and elders. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again after three days. But they didn't fully understand it. And as Jesus continues, the multitude is following him as he's on the far side of the Jordan. And as the people are coming, receiving healing, perhaps this rich young ruler, this one who has been watching and maybe hearing him, he sees all of this and, and the people are wondering and he's wondering, this is Messiah, isn't it? Truly, it's got to be the one that the prophet spoke of. And the disciples remember that they have been asking and will continue to, as we pick it up in chapter 20 next time, how to be great in the kingdom. And we know that we're going to read that it is two of the disciples that will send their mom because she's a good mom. She cares for her sons. And as she goes to Jesus, she says, can you put my sons number one and two in the kingdom on your left hand and on your right hand? And we'll look at that next time. But they're wanting to be assured of a great position in the kingdom. And I think this rich young ruler, he's one I picture him as being aggressive, doing what it takes to be successful. He wants a good position in the kingdom of God. When we are going to continue again in the next chapter as they come to Jericho, and Jesus then will make that ascent up to Jerusalem, that Luke tells us that they're expecting him to usher in the kingdom of God right away. So the mentality of this man is not just how to have eternal life, but how can I have a good position in the kingdom? But we do know that there are those who have all kinds of thoughts. The mentality of many in the world is what must I do to have eternal life? Be a good person. Be a good parent. 
be responsible, be kind to others. There's even movements in progressive theology that is saying it's not the cross that saves you, but you're to love your neighbor and, and to do good. And as we read the scriptures and as we know the gospels, we know that the world providing a lot of answers, the Bible gives one answer. And the answer is not in what you do. It's not in what I do. It's in what he did on Calvary's cross. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. And his coming in faith and recognizing our need to be saved, to be forgiven, because we can't save ourselves. It is faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace through faith. It, it is uh, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And we know that Paul would write in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. That word justification, justified, literally means just as if I've never sinned. To be justified before God, to have eternal life. No flesh will be justified because of the law in his sight, for the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, that we have the law given to us to show us that we're sinners, right? That's what Galatians is all about. To drive us to be a schoolmaster that we need the Savior, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross. He paid it all. He did it all. We know people all around us. They're in our families. They live next to us. They work alongside of us. They're friends that they think that they're going to make it to heaven because of what they do. I'm a good person. And the gospel says it's not in what you did. He's the one that paid it all. He's the one that did it all. And we come humbling ourselves and coming in childlike faith as we've been discussing over the last few weeks going through Matthew and recognizing our need to be forgiven, our need to surrender our lives to him. And we are justified freely by his grace, by his love, by his provision on the cross. It does kind of intrigue me that the world comes against that, the gospel. The world doesn't want to hear that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus declared that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He proved and validated what he did on the cross and and dying for sinful humanity. And that he proved that he is the way to the Father as he conquered sin and death. And he's at the right hand of the Father. He is the only way. Religion isn't going to save us. The church won't save you. One of the things that people ask is, why do you give an invitation at the end of the teaching? And I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. I don't want people to think that because they came and heard a Bible study that they got saved. There needs to be an acknowledgement of needing to come, repent of our sins, and turning to Jesus, turn direction, and turn to him for salvation. And when I heard that message for the first time, because I grew up in a church where it was tradition and it was religiousness, when I realized that religion won't save anyone, it's relationship with him. And when I heard the gospel that Jesus came and died for me, that he loved me that much, and then he cried out, it is finished, that I've done the work. And I can come in faith and just freely accept that free gift of salvation as I give my life to him. That was good news to me. So as we talk about this, you might be thinking, why did Jesus answer here that you must keep the commandments if you're not saved by our deeds, our works, by the law? 
Jesus is zeroing in on something truly that was lacking in this man's life. So let's keep reading and we'll put it all together in, in how Jesus is working with this individual. So verse 18, the ruler asked him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, which commandments do I keep? And Jesus quotes some of the Ten Commandments from Exodus. You, you know most of them, or are all of them. And Jesus quotes the Fifth through the Ninth Commandments. Interesting, he does not quote the Tenth Commandment, which is what? Thou shall not covet. And he does not quote the first four commandments, which deals with man's relationship with God. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall have no carved images. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Number four, you're to keep the Sabbath. And Jesus, notice here, after he quotes these commandments that deal with man's relationships with fellow men, with the exception of the tenth, coveting, he sums up the commandments that deal with your relationship with man by saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So stay with me. Verse 20. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So this individual acknowledges that I kept these commandments. And Jesus, he doesn't dispute it. I believe he could have. I believe he could have. He, this individual, probably did keep those commandments in such a way that made him righteous in the eyes of men. In the same sense that Paul would write how he was before he came to Christ, when he was a Pharisee of Pharisee. Writing to the church of Philippi in chapter 3 of Philippians, he tells us, don't have any confidence in the flesh. If anyone could have had confidence in, in the flesh, it was me, a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, circumcised on the eighth day. And he says, concerning the law, concerning righteousness of the law, I was blameless before man. I was blameless. And we know that Jesus challenges us in that, even in the Sermon on the Mount. He told the disciples that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the disciples and the people who were there heard that. They must have been thinking no one's more righteous than a scribe and a Pharisee, a religious leader. And Jesus begins to zero in on a heart issue. You can say that you have not murdered anyone, but if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you're guilty of murder. You can say you haven't committed adultery. But if you lust for another, you're guilty of adultery. And he, he begins to talk about the heart issue. And the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to drive us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. But what is intriguing here is he says, this rich young ruler, I kept those commandments from my youth, but what do I still lack? I've kept what you said, but I lack. He was successful. He was together. He was well known. He was a wonderful individual in the world's eyes. 
But I think inside that he wasn't fulfilled or satisfied. And Jesus is really trying to get him to understand what it is that he lacks. And that is a true relationship with God. Because God has made us in such a way. Listen, this is important. He made us in such a way that our soul longs for fellowship with God. He made us in such a way that we... We need to fellowship with him. To have fellowship with him is what will bring us that satisfaction and true fulfillment in life. But when there is no fellowship with God, eventually over time and at some time, you will lack. You will lack. There will be emptiness and loneliness. You can have the whole world. You can be successful, you can be rich, you can be well-known, and you still are lacking. You're still empty inside. And we see it with those who have fame in the world, have riches in the world, that they're empty. We see that they're not satisfied. We see that they're depressed. And there's something missing because they don't know the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon... He ruled with absolute power, complete authority. When Nebuchadnezzar said something, it became law. If he changed his mind two minutes later, then he could change his mind and became law again. And Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, it tells us, that chapter that's the foundation to all of Bible prophecy, that there is Nebuchadnezzar, and he was at rest in his house. He was flourishing in his palace, but as he laid in his bed, he was troubled in his soul. You read about him, how he went insane for seven years in chapter 4. And as God would, would deal with him and humble him, after those years of insanity, seven years, he comes out of it and he writes his testimony. You see, Daniel in chapter 2 told Nebuchadnezzar, this pride, powerful king who had everything, all power, all possessions, all riches, whatever he said went he was seen as a god to the Babylonians. And it was Daniel that said, Nebuchadnezzar, God has allowed you to have all power and glory in your kingdom. But you need to know this. Your kingdom's going down. Your kingdom's going to come to an end. You're the head of gold in that image that you saw. But you're going to be replaced by the chest and arms of silver. That's why in chapter 3, I believe, he makes that image all of gold. Because he was saying, I'm going to defy God. What you said, Daniel, my kingdom's going to last forever. And the Lord said, no, it's not. And he went insane for seven years. And he comes out of that insanity. And he writes his testimony. And he writes about that there is a God, the true God of heaven and earth that created heavens and earth. And you sense a peace that is in his soul and in his heart, you can have the whole world. You can seem to have it all. You can be looked up by the world and still be miserable. And you can still be in that place where you are troubled in your heart and in your soul as you lay in your bed. And maybe you come into this place and you say, what is it that I lack? You're doing well in the world's eyes. But you lack in your heart. And in Mark's gospel, it reads that Jesus looked at this rich young ruler and he looked at him with love. And he says, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. 
Jesus loving this man takes him back to the first table of the law. Jesus challenging him to put God first, to fulfilling the commandment of loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is not saying here that you have to give away everything. And he's not telling us that we have to give away all our possessions to the poor and come and follow him and take a vow of poverty because everything that we give to the poor, then they're going to have to give it away to somebody else so they can have eternal life. Jesus here knew that this man had a problem, and that was earthly possessions. The rich young ruler was more interested in earthly treasures than heavenly treasures. Possessions dominated his life. Jesus talked about it in the parable of the rich fool who was very successful, and and he built bigger barns, and he said that I'm going to take my ease and and eat, drink, and be merry, and and all of this. And it was the Lord that said, you fool, this night your soul is going to be required of you. And what was tragic in that parable is not that he had riches. What was tragic is that he was not rich towards God, towards heaven. That's what Jesus said. And that's the same thing going on here with this man. Jesus was trying to free this man, simplify your life, and come follow me. And you are going to have reward, as he's going to go on to say. And by the way, this vignette blows away the philosophy of the prosperity teachers, which are numerous, that riches are a sign of spirituality. Now, we do know that Possessions. We know that being rich in and of itself is not wrong. It's not a sin. We know from Scripture that many great men who loved the Lord were wealthy. Abraham, a friend of God. David, who had a heart after God. Solomon had the wisdom of God. Remember over Resurrection Weekend, we talked about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, two council members. They risked everything to go ask for the body of Jesus, to prepare him for burial, to put into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And they would lose their positions. They would lose everything. But they are ones that the scripture says that they were wealthy. And when wealth and possessions begin to possess us and dominate us and dictate our lives and hearts and how we serve and make decisions, then there's a problem. And Jesus loved this man and was dealing with a particular issue in his life that was holding him back. And in your life and in my life, it might be an entirely different issue. Jesus was trying to free him of something that was dominating and controlling and possessing this man. That was what his priority in his heart was, what he was living for. What drove him? What motivated him to live for the world? Now listen. The one thing that I really appreciate and respect very much in living in this community with you guys is you guys work hard. You work very hard. We're not being told here that if you have a business, that you shouldn't grow your business or be successful in your business. We're not being told here for you that work hard. We know the Bible says that work is good. The Bible talks about how we are to do that. I believe Christians should be the best example of workers that are out there. You who work the land and growing our crops and feeding the world. I very much appreciate you. You who work the land, that you raise beef and 
Colorado beef, I appreciate you because I love my beef, okay? For you, those that are here, the, your teachers in the schools and in the colleges and the universities, and I so appreciate and very thankful that you're light. For you who work in the medical field, doctors and nurses and what you've gone through in the last year. We have those who are first responders. We very much respect you. For you who are just working to provide for your family. You have a business. You're working hard. You're doing what you believe is right in taking care of your children. And being one that you fix things and you're mechanics and you work in all areas of life. I very much appreciate what you do. And I respect that. But here the Lord is trying to, to tell us that what we do, we are to do as unto the Lord, right? Not as men pleasers, but to say, Lord, that I am going to move forward in my business. I'm going to continue with my education. We got those who have graduated at UNC this weekend. I'm, you know, it's just all the hard work they put into it. Others that are continuing their education. I very much respect that and appreciate that. And desiring to do well in life, but do it as unto the Lord. And let him be the priority of every area of your life. And you will see that you will experience that abundant life. Amazon River Basin. You know how they catch monkeys. Maybe perhaps you can Google it and you can see. that What they do is they take a coconut and they drill a hole in it. And they fill it full of rice or fruit or something. And they tie the coconut to the tree or to the ground. And so the little monkey comes along, sticks his hand in there, grabs it, and then... As the people come, he's trying to get his hand out. He won't let go. He won't let go of the food. He won't let go of, uh, of what is there. You can actually watch videos of it. It's, it's sad to watch. And they're pulling, you know, trying to get their arm out. All they have to do is let go and pull their hand out. But they won't let go of it. And the people know that. And they come and they catch the, the monkey that they're trying to catch. In honesty of our hearts, is there something that has priority over our relationship with him and we're saying, I can't let go of it? I don't want to let go of it. I was thinking as I was reading once again this week in, in Psalm 46, verse 6, that God, he uttered his voice and the earth melted. We know that everything in this world is going to burn up. It's going to go away. It's going to melt away. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. We're going to be with the Lord for all eternity. Why prioritize something that's going to melt away? In other words, that is temporal. It doesn't mean those things aren't important, but they're not the priority. And we are told that we are to store up our treasures in heaven, which will last for all eternity. And that's why it grieves me to see people, even Christians, pursue just the temporal treasure. That's all they want to do and are not rich towards heaven. And we don't want to let possessions or hobbies or anything else. Listen, enjoy your summer. Listen, enjoy going out camping. Go enjoy going out fishing. Enjoy those things. 
We can enjoy those things, but don't let it be a priority over the Lord. And as you let the Lord be the priority in those things, whatever it is that you do in your activities, in how you live your life, in your work, in every area of your life, then you're going to be able to do those things and enjoy those things much more. But honestly, are there things, and I think this is something that we constantly have to go to the Lord. Is there anything that has taken me away from you, Lord? Because it's possessing me. And it has priority over you. I need to let it go. Or I need to get the right perspective. And Jesus continues to give us perspective in this. In verse 23, he said to his disciples, Surely I say to you, that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let's look at this carefully. The disciples seeing and hearing this exchange between Jesus and this rich young ruler. Hey, get rid of your possessions. Pick up your cross. Follow me. It's going to take you to Calvary. And he ended up leaving Jesus sorrowful. Jesus then turns to his disciples and said, It's hard for a man to enter the kingdom who has riches. And they were astonished. It was a remarkable statement that Jesus made as he speaks of the love of riches and possessions and things having priority over God. And he says it does terrible things to the soul. Matter of fact, it's easier for a camel to enter into the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Now, I've heard this taught, perhaps you have as well, that in Jerusalem, in Jesus' day, Jerusalem was an ancient city that had walls around it and they had gates different gates, Damascus Gate, the East Gate, you know, the Dung Gate, all these different gates. And during the Sabbath or at certain times, they would shut those gates. They would close them up. And so people couldn't get into the city. And there are those who will say, well, at Jesus at this time, he's referring to what was called the Needle Gate. And it's a Needle Gate. And even if you go to Jerusalem, I remember one time that I took a group, a guy came up and said, hey, if you pay me this amount of money, I'll take your group to go see one of these Needle Gates. Well, the Needle Gate supposedly was a small gate that would allow one individual to go through if the main gates were closed. And the thought was, and I've heard even someone teach on this, that if you would come and and, you know, the needle gate was accessed for one person at a time. If you took the baggage off the camel and you got that camel down on his knees and pushed and pulled and worked and with a lot of effort and a lot of strain, you could push that camel through the needle gate. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Because the disciples, first of all, they will tell you there's no such thing as a needle gate. But second of all, the disciples are saying, they're astonished. They're saying, then who can be saved? Prosperity teaching was a part of the theology of the Pharisees. We know that. Luke writes in chapter 16 that the Pharisees had a love for money. Remember that it was Paul. He didn't say, as he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he doesn't say that it's the money that's the root of all evil. He says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And as Paul is writing that, he's talking about what it does. And we know that 
the Pharisees, they had a love for money. They were generally wealthier than the rest of the population. They thought that having riches meant a better chance to get into heaven. And here Jesus says, not so fast. And the disciples are amazed. Who then can be saved? Jesus says, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And again, there are a lot of people that perhaps that are around us that would like to believe that with a lot of strain and a lot of struggle and a lot of sweat and a lot of guts and determination that you can save yourself. You can't save yourself. With men, it is impossible. But with God who has made it possible, a work of God's grace and mercy and love that is sufficient for the rich individual, for the poor individual, God can free us from whatever may enslave us. And the rich individual and the poor individual has to acknowledge their complete and utter need for the work of the cross. So Peter pipes up. He always makes things interesting. He said in verse 27, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Lord, we're not like this rich young ruler who's not willing to pay the price. We're left all, so what do we get? And Jesus answered, said to them, Surely I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Peter and all of you who have left all to follow me, there will be great reward in heaven. And in serving the Lord, listen, keep in mind, in living for the Lord, in pleasing the Lord with your life, there are rewards that are to be given to us, and we're going to talk more about this next time. And the Bible says that we should desire those rewards. I remember somebody saying, well, that's selfish to desire rewards, not according to Jesus, not according to the Bible. And, and we know that Jesus talked a lot about it, and we're going to see as he talks about greatness and serving and rewards that are given to us as we live for the Lord, as we will stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. You know, we have the Olympics coming up this summer. I heard they're going to go ahead and go forward with the Olympics. And, and we love the Olympics, don't we? The, the winners uh, are there on the podium, and, and we have the flags, and they hear the national anthem. And, you know, it, it's great. And what an accomplishment it is for those athletes to win those events. So the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, that's in the Greek. It's speaking of rewards when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ. When Paul's writing to the Corinthians about that, they knew exactly what he was saying because, you know, they were all into the Olymp ancient Olympic games, the Isthmus games in court, and they would come, the winners of the events, and stand at the Bema reward seat and receive rewards for their events. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about salvation. He's Paul's not talking about salvation when he says we will all stand at the beam of reward seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and also in Romans chapter 14. We're going to stand at the beam of reward seat of Christ. And Jesus said you're going to be rewarded for all eternity. Now there are those who will take verse 29 and they'll pervert it and say if you give me a dollar you're going to get $100 back a reward the prosperity teachers. It's not what is being said here. And by the way, a little side note. I still would like to sometime, always think about this, I'd like to write the prosperity teachers a letter and say, why don't you give me, send me some money so you can get a hundredfold back. 
And I bet you anything, I wouldn't receive anything. Because it's a scam. We are to give freely. We are to give willingly. The Lord, we can't outgive the Lord. He blesses those who give, but it's not a math formula. And as we do give to the Lord, my desire is for you and for me as we stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's our future. And those rewards are going to be for all eternity. Everything else here in this world is going to burn up. It doesn't mean, again, we don't want to leave a godly inheritance. You know, that's the most important thing. Or even an inheritance to our children and grandchildren. Proverbs says it's a good man that does that. It doesn't mean that we don't want to be good stewards of what we have. We are to do that. But he is the priority. And to be thankful for what the Lord has given to us and to be rich towards heaven, not just to live for ourselves and mass possessions. Because if you do, if I do, then we will lack. We're just going to lack in our hearts. Live for the Lord. Let him rule over every area of your life. That means the finances, what we have, they really, it all belongs to him. And as you and I do that every single day, the joy, the joy unspeakable, the peace that passes understanding, to be able to just be a light to others that are around us because we are rushing towards eternity and our lives are but a vapor. So live for him and to go to him and say, Lord, is there anything that I need to let go of? that is dominating my heart, my time, my devotion when it comes to you. It has priority over you. I need to let it go. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these important words given to us. Because we're in this world, we work hard, and, Lord, we want to keep a proper perspective of things. And, Lord, I thank you again for what you allow us to do that every good gift comes from above. And Lord, we want to be good stewards of what you've given to us. But may we, Lord, also be rich towards you, whether we have much or whether we have little. Being a good steward that pleases you with what we have. And Lord, that we would not put those things as a priority. And if there's anything in our lives that we need to let go of that is holding us back from really moving forward and growing in our love and devotion to you, may we just let it go. Or adjust things. Or Lord, just speak to us. Lord, I pray that we would be ones, that we would have the eternal perspective, not just a temporal perspective. So, Lord, we thank you for these words and for this account given to us to teach us. And I thank you that Jesus comes along and he sets the record straight to give us truth. Lord, I just also want to pray if there's anyone here that you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, that you would do that today. Today is the day of salvation. He is your salvation. It's not you. It's not a church. It's not in what you do. It's what he did. 
and to recognize that you need to turn to him and ask for forgiveness and surrender your life to him. He loves you. He desires to forgive you, make you a new person, give you a new heart, a new spirit, a new beginning, become a new creation, forgiven, and bring you into the family of God to have the spirit of adoption where you can cry out, Abba, Father. And to live for him. You can receive that starting today, coming in faith and being forgiven and have the hope of eternal life. As you call out on Jesus and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Come. And you can pray, Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I confess I'm a sinner. Forgive me and I believe you rose again and you're speaking to my heart. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart as my Lord and Savior. And I do want to know you and walk with you. I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for bringing me into the family of God. I want to know you. I want to walk with you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And for all of us that we go out of this place just being freed. That you desire for us to have not only life, eternal life, but life abundantly now. A life of blessing. And we know that the challenges and the trials and the pain and all that comes. But your promises are true and you'll never leave us or forsake us. And that we would be ones that have the heart and the mindset of being rich towards heaven and ministering to our children and bringing a cup of water to a child Jesus said is great reward and just living for you and and being light and truth and making a meal for somebody giving words of encouragement Lord to just serve you whatever opportunities and gifts that you've given to us, spiritual gifts. So Lord, I thank you for this morning. I pray you bless everyone here and and the moms in their very special day. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.